how are Reconstructionist communities distinctive, different from other liberal, inclusive Jewish communities? What makes a community distinctively Reconstructionist? The um, question is not uncommon. I get it a lot. Um, what's the difference? What's the difference? Why is there a need for a Reconstructionist movement? I often hear the question um, phrased less delicately, <laughs> like, why is there a need for a Reconstructionist movement or for Reconstructionist synagogues when Reconstructionist communities appear very similar, indistinguishable from other communities? You know, part of this question goes, Reconstructionism, we all are in its debt. It made a lot of major contributions in the 20th century, but there's no longer a need because we're all doing what you innovated 10, 20, 50 years ago. Like, thank you so much for introducing the bat mitzvah ceremony and in 1922, and women Torah readers in the 1940s, and counting women in the minion in the 1950s. Thank you for the new Haggadah in the early 1940s. It was the first creative, interpretive Haggadah, but now there are dozens and dozens and dozens. We don't need it anymore. Thank you for showing us how to um, do new liturgy, how to take old ritual and make new meaning out of it, how to retake out words and put in other words and put in other readings. But now, now we don't need the Reconstructionist Haggadah anymore. Thank you. Thank you so much for your vision in beginning to admit lesbian and gay students for the rabbinate in 1983. But now everybody's doing it. Um, thank you for um, developing in 1992 same-sex wedding ceremonies, but that's just passé today. Thank you for the extraordinary prayer book series Kol Hanshama, which is now being, um, which has been very influential in the development of other movements' prayer books with the commentary, with a multivocal commentary where different interpretations are at the bottom of the page and where transliteration is where people can use it in the middle of the page and the way that Hebrew and English come together in the middle and, and all the different things that you did. It was so visionary, but there's no longer anything distinctive about it. Everybody is doing it. Um, and Thank you for advocating, even before 1948, a new Zionism, a spiritual Zionism, for, for envisioning that Israel should have um, uh, uh, policies that embody Jewish ideals and values. Nobody was talking about that besides Reconstructionists in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, but now many, many people are talking about it. So not an innovation anymore. Everyone, it is said, is caught up with us. We broke new ground, but now we are just like everyone else, and we're smaller, so what's the use? That's the question. That's the title. That is the long thing, is the subject of this talk. And here's my main point, which I will then elaborate. The main point is these contributions did not happen 
accidentally. It's not just we were we lucked out on some influential innovations. They arose and continue to arise out of an approach to Jewish life. They animate the, the approach that animates the way that Reconstructionist communities are structured and the way that Reconstructionist communities function. Others can adopt our innovations, but they don't replicate the culture the theory and the structure and the practice from which these innovations emerge. So first a bit of background and then a lot of examples. Some of you probably know and others may be less familiar that Reconstructionism defines Judaism as the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people. And uh, permit me to uh, go to analyze that statement in several parts as an introduction to what follows. First, the evolving religious civilization of the Jewish people. Peoplehood is primary. If you think about how uh, an infant is acculturated, first you belong to your family, to community. Then you learn how to behave like people behave in your community, and then you come to believe what members of your community believe. But being part of a people, belonging, is first, is primary. Judaism, Jewish civilization, comes out of belonging to the Jewish people. Second, Judaism is a civilization, not just a religion, a religious civilization, yes, but it is far more than how we pray and what rituals we observe. Um, there uh, is a literature that's Jewish. There is music that is Jewish. There are customs about how to parent, about how to give tzedakah, about what to eat. About there are political attitudes and. And so on. I could go on and on. Everything that, can, uh, that a civilization is composed of, Judaism has that. And it is perfectly possible to be a full and complete Jew, I hazard to say, even if you don't believe in God and never enter into a synagogue, right? Um, you know, we, are, we are often fond of using the derogatory term bagels and lox Jews or, um, you know, but um, all the, or you just have ethnic identification. But, you know, whether we approve of it or not, it is Jewish. Judaism, you can be a Jew who only reads about Jewish history. You can uh, be a Jew on a secular kibbutz in Israel or now we have secular kibbutzim of young Jews in Kentucky and elsewhere, um, and uh, you're Jewish. It's not just a religion. The definition of Judaism as a religion, as ethical monotheism, which the Reform Movement uh, defined it as in the 19th century, was on the Protestant model. How do we get emancipated and become part of the larger Western society well, some people are Catholics, and some are Protestant, and some are Jews, but we're all Americans, or all French, or all British. Um, so we redefine Judaism to fit the mold of our contemporary circumstances, but Judaism is more 
than a religion, and it doesn't get f- get fed. It traditionally does not grow and flourish out of one's beliefs and one worship. It gets fed out of being part of a community with all of its civilizational aspects. And third, Jewish civilization evolves, has always evolved, continues to change and adapt to new circumstances. Chicken was once parv, now it's meat. Fish was once parv, it's still parv. You know, like, and there are circumstances that make that happen. The bar mitzvah ceremony develops in the 15th century when um, confirmation of Catholic children moves from 8 or 9 to 14. Before that, the Jewish initiation ritual happened at age 6 or 7. Coincidentally, the surrounding culture, the Christian society, Catholic society had um, confirmation at that age. So we are influenced by our surrounding uh, culture. You would think that you know God commanded a bar mitzvah party at Mount Sinai, but it's not not true. Um, Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel's view of God is not like Rabbi Akiva's, and neither would be um, recognizable to the philosopher Sadia Gaon or Maimonides and neither would theirs be recognizable to Kabbalists uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, our beliefs evolve um, as they, we are influenced by surrounding culture. Um, maybe one more example. Lichtbenchen, lighting the candles on Friday night with Lahad Lichnir Shel Shabbat, the bracha that says we are commanded to light the candles of Shabbat is an innovation from the 10th century, which was really an anti-Karaite polemic because the Karaites didn't light lights on Shabbat. And the Rabbinites, the, the, uh, the rabbinic Judaism said, ha, that's from Sinai. God commanded it. And so, so one of our most central rituals, right, comes about uh, as a result of an intra- Jewish um, competition and, and conflict. And that doesn't make it any less powerful. If you light candles on Friday night and you identify with your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and you bring in the light of Shabbat and your soul, that's fine. But that particular practice is only a thousand years old. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Um, And the point is, therefore, we have an obligation to continue to evolve, to continue to reconstruct. It is a mandate. It is almost a divine commandment that we can't stay still. We can't remain in place because everything changes and we must continue to evolve uh, to um, survive, to flourish, to... All right, okay. Can you it so? Okay, so how does that work in terms of bat mitzvah or the prayer book series or all the other innovations that I, that I um, listed? 
Okay, as I mentioned last night, I think, I think that was the talk, <laughs> um, the major change from modern, from pre-modern to modern Jewish society is you no longer live in a self-governing Jewish community that is governed by Jewish law and in which rabbis have the authority over you. Um, and the question that Kaplan tried to address over and over again in his various books is, can Jewish civilization survive if we don't live in communities? Because the way that a civilization flourishes and grows and changes is in the context of a people, a community, a nation, a, whatever. You know, you have to be um, an entity, a group. And if you're part of the larger secular uh, nation of France or or England or the United States or Canada, um, how can that work? And his proposal and our program is that we need to create living, vital, exciting, voluntary, voluntarily joined communities participatory decision-making communities, right? So in which you participate, but not just you get a reading to read on Rosh Hashanah or on a, on a Friday night service, and uh, not just by helping out um, the uh, women's or men's club and getting together um, uh, activities or on some program board. Also, you participate in making decisions in the life of the community. So, um, if you're trying to develop, if the community has to have a policy on what can and can't be brought in to the kitchen in terms of the dietary laws, in terms of kashrut, it's not something that a rabbi decides. It's something that the community or a sub-community, a, a ritual committee, a religious committee, studies and talks about for a year or two and comes up with a consensus decision. You study the rules, the laws. You study the midrash, the interpretations. You, you study about the development of communities and, and community um, dynamics and you know what are the pros and cons? Do you want to have people cook at home and bring it in, even if their their kitchens at home aren't kosher? It's, is it more important to have people be involved? Um, is it a matter of kosher ingredients? Is it a matter of just no pork or no shellfish? I mean, whatever it is, you learn about the reasons for everything, and then you come to a decision that then gets brought in some places to uh, a planner, plenary meeting to the old congregation to ratify. Everybody learns about it. And at the end, you have a policy that everybody has ownership over and in which everybody has learned about the dietary laws. Um, and everybody can be proud of whether they agree or disagree with the final decision, whether they were in the majority or the minority. They are part of a functioning uh, community. Um, should um, the synagogue staff, to take another um, kind of example, spend more time on inreach, serving existing members, or outreach, trying to get new members? 
There are, there's a lot at stake often for a community in that decision. Where should person, with the time, the valuable time of one's professionals be spent? On the one hand, you want to grow. On the other hand, you want to nurture people you already have. Um, that is not a decision in Reconstructionist terms for the professional or other staff to make. It's a decision of thoughtful people in conversation, in discussion, and dialogue uh, to make jointly, whether it is the board of directors or the outreach committee or however it is functioned, laity, right, non-rabbis, regular Jews, participate in participatory decision-making communities, not because rabbis give them permission, but because it is their community. You know, as an aside, right, as you may have noticed, Jews are extremely highly educated and are experts and professors and CEOs and professionals of all sorts. And when you walk into a synagogue, you don't lose those skills and those insights and that wisdom. And in a participatory decision-making community, your skills and training and wisdom get enlisted for the sake of the community, not as an aside. Well, well, I don't really know how to pray. I can't read Hebrew, but I am good at um, uh, uh, computer stuff. That's that's not the you know what you're good at. What you're what you're good at is part of what you contribute uh, to the community. Um, so. On many, many surveys that we've done, you ask people why they join Reconstructionist communities, and the number one reason is it's warm and welcoming. Right? None, none of the other stuff that I'm about to um, talk about. Um, but the question is, why are they warm and welcoming? Are you welcoming somebody because you're a nice person? Well, yeah, I think Reconstructionists are nice and are good people. But if you have a stake, if you have ownership in the community, then you're welcoming someone not to somebody else's community. It is yours. You have that kind of ownership, and you are enthusiastic, and you're a participant, and you um, get a lot of respect and appreciation for your contributions uh, to the community. It all comes out of peoplehood is primary decision-making community, participation and decision-making communities is the way that we are trying and often succeeding to create really um, warm and exciting places that other people want to join. So number two was warm and welcoming, and I'm done with that. So we'll go on to number three. I mean, I think you know about warm and welcoming. I think, you know, you walk into this place, you know warm and welcoming. So, because we no longer have self-governing communities, I mentioned this in passing last night, because we no longer have self-governing communities, you might call halakha the law, Jewish law, but it's not. Laws are things that are enforced. Excuse me. Um, so, 
therefore, when we observe, and we're really interested in observing, and I remember in the late 90s there was a there were two surveys, one of the Reconstructionist movement and one of, of the people in the conservative movement. It turned out we had a higher level of kosher observance than the conservative movement, not because we think it's the law, not because we think it's commanded, but because we embrace our uh, traditions, however we do, and because we find meaning in them. So if you're going to observe and you don't think it's commanded, then you need to make meaning. And if it's not meaningful, you need to change it to make it meaningful. So things get changed as a as a necessity, not as a gift or as a as a concession. Um, so uh, you know, it's not a matter of doing all the prayers that are prescribed on Friday night for Kabbalat Shabbat because it's commanded. You want to create a meaningful, prayerful experience, and you start with whatever we started with last night, L'chadodi, I think, you know, and you, you light the candles and you, in the end, have a prayerful experience rather than covering every word in the Siddur. You know what's in the Siddur. You make choices about how to do that uh, communally, in concert, and, um, and you have, therefore, um, a more vital prayerful experience. Um, if you're in a community, it's not a matter of there being uh, a mitzvah, a commandment that you should visit the sick. Visiting the sick is part of what you do in a community, and many Reconstructionist communities have support system networks where um, you have, first of all, support groups for people in the sandwich generation who are dealing with uh, problematic uh, teenagers or young adults and parents, uh, um, aging parents. Um, you have uh, a group that makes sure that meals are provided when they are needed for a variety of reasons. You have people driving each other to chemo treatment appointments if they need that. Um, you have vocational re retraining when people lose their jobs. You have people caring about each other, not because they have to, but because they are part of a community. Um, so the fact that halacha is no longer enforceable, to summarize this point, means that you do more, not that you do less. Right? Um, we are not minimalist Jews. We are maximalist Jews, and we yes. do them. Yes. <laughs> Especially Rabbi Amy Bernstein. She does a lot. <laughs> okay. Number four. Nice segue. The, 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 the rabbinic role. The rabbinic role. <laughs> So what is a rabbi if not an authority of Jewish practice telling you what you're supposed to do, right? So in this model, it is a collaborative model, a decision-making collaborative model, um, a collaborative model in connecting with people. Um, I, um, it's, a, it's a model in which Rabbis are educated to respect you and to elicit the best from you 
and to value that because you are the essential members of, of the community, not the rabbi. The rabbi is important, <laughs> very important, as a leader, as an organizer, as a teacher, but not as the authority. We know and we respect the fact that you're going to do what you're going to do both here and after you leave the synagogue building, and we don't say you should be different. We want to know what you need, and we want to know how to provide that, and we want to bring all of you together to do that um, in, in ways that are meaningful and life-giving and inspiring um, and exciting. Um, and uh, that's what rabbis are here for. Five, pluralism. Again, I've mentioned this somewhere on the course of the weekend. We don't all have to do the same Jewish things. Right? And we don't all have to agree about what is legitimately Jewish and what isn't. We don't have to agree uh, politically about what the right thing to do is. You know, in the 1980s, in the Reconstructionist congregations, some people wanted to declare the synagogue sanctuary for undocumented people who are going to be deported uh, to, to places that they should not be deported to. And some people in those same congregations didn't think that the synagogue should break the law and risk the whole, um, risk everything by being sanctuary uh, in, in the time of the 80s. And many synagogues decided to have groups in the synagogue forming sanctuary, uh, declaring sanctuary, not the synagogue as a synagogue itself, not representing everyone, but just representing the people who were part of that interest group, people who are interested in doing so. And the people who were not interested in doing so supported the right of the people who wanted to do it uh, to do it. There were legal issues, but it was uh, made, it, it, they were worked out. Um, example, um, nowadays there are, in the Northeast, there's this thing called congregational-based community organizing in which um, Jewish and Christian um, com congregations work together to f for education or to combat poverty or various social uh, justice issues, and the synagogue signs up. Again, synagogues are signing up not because everybody agrees that they want to do it, but because some people want to do it, and that's a Jewish thing to do for some people. Not everybody has to agree. Everybody has to agree that people should do things in a Jewish con context, whether you agree with them agree with that particular thing or not. There is I don't, you know, no reason why there shouldn't be both an APAC chapter, chapter of KI and a J Street chapter of KI. Um, it, there's, uh, it's not a community isn't a group of people all of whom agree about everything. It is a group of people who are being Jewish together in a variety of in a diverse, diversity of ways. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> okay. To say that 
we are an evolving, this is number six tradition, evolving religious civilization, means that we always look to make meaning and to revalue in Kaplan's clumsy, uh, to reinterpret, to, to find meaning, right? So you celebrate, you, you make a Passover Seder, and if the traditional Haggadah doesn't work, to make you feel liberated or to be dedicated to freedom for all people. So you change the ritual. You keep it, but you change it so that it has a different, so that you can evoke the meaning of freedom and liberation, both internal and political, um, on the, uh, uh, in the ritual. We have, the Reconstructionist Movement has a website called ritualwell.org. Um, and uh, you know, nowadays if someone says, Jacob, will you, uh, will you conduct um, a Brit for my granddaughter, uh, a, you know, a Brit Benot, a, a, a covenantal ceremony to welcome in my granddaughter, um, they also send with the email some ritual uh, that they find on Ritual Well and say, well, you use this particular ceremony. Uh, it's all available. We collect them. We edit them. We, uh, it's an incredible wealth of material. And in the last few months, there's a whole new section of ritual for transgender, the lives of transgender Jews. What do you do? What is the bracha and the ritual for um, transitioning um, what is the uh, uh, way to mark putting on to in for the first time as a man, and so on and so forth? Um, we are a movement who that does not shy away from trying new things and from making meaning where there aren't meaningful ways of doing things. Um, I mentioned that in the early 90s, we were the first to say, hey, if you think it's all right for uh, same-gendered couples to get married, let's, let's construct um, wedding ceremonies that are like and unlike uh, the ones that come down uh, to us. We are the first in the early 70s to develop a... Um, Ceremony for a covenantal naming ceremony for girls, the original baby girls, the original one by uh, Rebecca and Joel Alpert and Dennis and Sandy Sasso um, was uh, published before, uh, I think in the first issue of Moment magazine in 1972 or 1973. Uh, we are ready to try new things. Um, if you... Uh, need something that doesn't exist you look you study you uh, you get, are familiar with what rituals do exist and you see how to apply them to unprecedented um, situations and it's not only ritual um, if and here we look um, moving a little bit towards the future if it turns out that congregations are no longer the primary locus of uh, Jews' identification in, the, in these new generations, if people are no longer joining synagogues, not because they're not interested in being Jewish, just because they're not interested in joining synagogues, you've got to figure out how to reinterpret what a community is, you know, how 
does a virtual community work? How can you have um, e-lists? And I mean, I don't. I'm talking like I know something. I don't know what to do in the in the next generation. But but people are working on this. Um, how if you're not all in the same room, can you be a community? Uh, we need to figure that out. And instead of bemoaning the membership numbers in synagogues, we need to figure out how to do that. Um, we need to, you know, do a little bit of what Hillel is doing, going where the Jews are to bring them in. But we also need to reconceptualize because um, Jews are no longer living in areas of high concentration concentration of Jew of being Jewish uh, we got to figure out another way to do it everything continues to change and we can need to evolve with uh, new circumstances um, if another example if there are many many communities today where people cannot know do not know what they do, what to do Jewishly because they remember their parents or grandparents uh, doing doing these things, you know. I remember my grandmother with a chicken over her head, you know, before the era of Yom Kippur. Most people. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, okay, so I, I have a wealth of memories, Eastern European memories of of how things work today. Many people do not have grandparents who ever did those things. And many people don't have Jewish parents or grandparents. Um, and um, given that, we need to uh, revisit what Jewish identity is like. We have depended on nostalgia um, a whole lot um, I feel Jewish. A lot of people don't know what that means. What it means to, they even want to be rabbis and they don't know what it means to feel Jewish. And we're working on it with them. You know, we have labs and all kinds of ways of introducing them to uh, new rituals. They know they love being Jewish, but they don't have the body knowledge, you know, the, the childhood uh, uh, memory of that. And if, if rabbinical students don't have it, then I assume non-rabbinical students don't have it either. And uh, we need to uh, figure out what it means to be Jewish and how to express that and how to um, address it and, and so on. Um, and for sure, this next generation does not want to be Jewish because the Holocaust and the establishment of the state of Israel. Thank God they are not traumatized the way previous generations have been, and they are not sure that the Holocaust is about to happen tomorrow in Pacific Palisades. It's not clear to them that they have to be um, on guard, and their view of Israel, which they have only known post-67 or post-73, is not as an embattled uh, nation. And so all of the reliance that the Jewish community has made in previous decades in, in cementing Jewish identity by evoking the Holocaust and um, is the embattled state of Israel doesn't wash in the same way anymore. And we need other ways of 
involving people in a commitment to their identity. We need to reconstruct some basic structures of thought and of identity um, that, um, that we have relied on for a long time. How can we be Jewish if it's not an ethnic thing? If you don't have memories of bagels and locks, if you don't know the smells of a challah, uh, baking. Um, uh, if you don't remember the Yiddish of your ancestors, what does it mean? It means a lot, but we have not. But but there are a lot of born Jews of older generations who resist the notion that you can be a bona fide Jew if you don't have what they had. Uh, who resist change? Who resist the need for ongoing reconstruction? Just a couple of more. Points One, I can't do this without mentioning chosenness, the chosen people. It's not new, but it is central to all of our innovations and our approaches to Jewish life. Can you be Jewish if you don't think that Jews, being Jewish is better than being something else? Is it possible to be proud without being without making the claim for superiority. Um, we live in an open society. We marry in ever larger numbers um, people who are not uh, born Jewish or people who are not Jewish at all. Um, how do we relate to our colleagues, our friends, our family members? If, um, and, and how can we avoid the implicit superiority and chauvinism uh, that that saying that we are the chosen people um, engenders. I should say that traditionally that's not what the chosen people was all about. Traditionally, chosenness meant you thought the Torah was the best, the only, you know, that we were chosen to receive the Torah and all of its obligations. That is not what most of us mean because we have not accepted the Torah um, and all of its obligations anymore. So... What? We end up uh, counting Nobel Prizes to explain um, chosenness, that we are smarter, we are more innovative, that we are better. Uh, And that is not what chosenness was originally about and is not a very, it's a a real turnoff to um, to, uh, generations today. Finally, and most dear to my heart, I guess most important is decision, participatory decision-making communities, but most dear to, dearest to my heart is that evolution, believing that Judaism evolves, frees us to acknowledge that many, many of our traditions, of our beliefs, and of our practices are unpleasant at best and objectionable, Right? Um, they were in. The, they were in their time. You know, they made sense to other people. They don't have to make sense to us. We aren't tied to justifying everything that our ancestors believed and did. You know, Kaplan wrote a book called "The Meaning of God in Modern Jewish Religion," in which he revalues each of the holidays. I've mentioned Passover, but he has different values expressed by every one of our holidays. That's fine. But he also says that some things can't be revalued. Let's uh, so for some non-controversial examples, the treatment and the status of women can't be revalued. You can't apologize for it. You have to change it. Um, 
the teachings in our tradition that say that there are four different kinds of souls, plants, animals, humans, and Jews, and that we are species different than, than other people's is just not something you can throw into the washing machine and it comes out clean. <laughs> you have to change it, right? You, um, um, we don't stone our disobedient children, right? There are all kinds of things you find in the... <laughs> Stop, don't do that. <laughs> and... Um, you know, uh, husbands had uh, the right to beat their wives uh, in the pre-modern era if the wives didn't obey them, didn't do what they were supposed to do. It's like, you know, you can you can find a lot of Jewish writing that says, oh, yeah, well, but we treated women better. Men treated women better than in other surroundings. No, no, no. That's not good enough. There are things you have to change. Um, and... Um, and I, I run into this a lot in subtle ways, you know, tikkun olam. Uh, there's a tendency in many places to say, oh, yes, Jews have always been for social justice. Not true. Not true. Some were and some weren't. You know, you need to acknowledge that um, in Poland in the 16th century, community took care of orphans. And if an orphan girl came from a poor family, they gave her a poor wedding. And if she came from a rich family, they gave her a rich person's wedding. They, they, we were not in favor of egalitarian and communitarian <laughs> values. We were interested, you know, we, we were taking care of people, but in our own way. It's not that we have always been progressive in the way that we've been progressive today. And it's okay to acknowledge that and to say, and we're reconstructing that. It, it frees me not to have to apologize for every silly thing um, that uh, a Jew has done over the course of thousands of years. And it, it frees us to move forward without feeling bad about betraying the legacy, um, uh, legacies of our ancestors. Um, because Judaism isn't, hasn't been perfect, and it's not God-given. It is human-created in an encounter with the divine, um, but it is, as I mentioned this morning, it is, however divine it is, it's filtered through very human, imperfect beings, and we are part of the people, and we have that heritage, uh, the part of the Jewish people. Uh, but it's, it's okay. You can love your grandparents and great-grandparents, even if you don't like everything that they did. You, still, you, you are still their grandchildren, but it doesn't mean that you have to do everything uh, their way. So, because we are participatory decision-making communities, and because we believe in ongoing evolution, that needs to, uh, and the imperative to adapt to ever-emerging needs and not to apply old How would that work? Old skins to new wine? I don't know. But not apply old strategies to new circumstances. Um, we often are the first to take the first step into the unknown, um, into, into dealing with new 
into new territory. Are our innovations, are our approaches always a home run? No. No, no. Most things that we try don't work. And some things work really well and resonate and um, spread from community to community and out of the Reconstructionist movement to other movements. I've mentioned a bunch of those. But as a historian, as someone who teaches Jewish history, I can assure you that most innovations and experiments and changes that Jews have done um, over the centuries we don't know about because they didn't last. They didn't survive because they didn't resonate. And it's okay. It's okay for us to continue to reconstruct and to continue to evolve and to try things until we find what really works. Um, and, uh, and that is uh, part of what makes Reconstructionist communities different. We, are, we say tradition has a vote, but not a veto. We listen to the voice of tradition. We study the voice of traditions. We learn where we come from. But we are not tied to doing things uh, the same way. And so uh, we are free to do things that are outrageous um, in their time that seem obvious to us 10 or 20 years later when it turns out um, all right, so I think I'll end there. Thank you very much for your attention.